The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. So we've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. Today, we will be studying in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. And it says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of flour, fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? He said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid, he said. No, but you did laugh. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Rick. Let's pray this morning. Father, we know that in order to rightly understand both uh, what this passage is teaching and also how it connects to our lives, that we need the Holy Spirit. So please, Lord, send your spirit to minister to us through this passage today in a most powerful way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The longer you live, uh, the more apparent it becomes that life doesn't always turn out the way we think it's going to turn out or the way we want it. To turn out, we often begin our adult lives with at least a basic idea of what we want our futures to look like. You know, we have dreams and desires and goals. For example, we might have educational goals. 
That involved going to a certain college or getting a certain degree. We might have career-related goals that involve getting a job in a certain field and doing something we enjoy and earning a generous salary. We might have family-related goals that involve finding that special someone and getting married and having kids. So there are all kinds of goals and desires that people often have for their future. And yet, life doesn't always turn out the way we think it will. It's actually not that uncommon for, at all for us to encounter significant disappointments in our lives. And sometimes these disappointments are so severe and so painful that it feels like we're just wandering around in some sort of desert wasteland and trying to understand, struggling to, to understand why God would allow our lives to turn out this way. We might even be tempted to become bitter against God. And that seems to be where Abraham's wife Sarah is here in Genesis 18. I mean, think about it. For decades, Sarah has desperately wanted a child and has even been promised a child by God. But now here she is as a 90-year-old and without any children. Not surprisingly, as we'll see in a few moments, by this point, Sarah had basically given up all hope of ever having a child and resigned herself to what she viewed as that inevitable reality. Yet as we'll see, Abraham and Sarah receive some very important visitors in this passage who come with a very important message. Look with me at verse 1 in the beginning of verse 2. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, as we'll see, uh, two of these men actually weren't men at all. Uh, in fact, all three aren't men at all. Two of them were angels, and then the third was actually the Lord Yahweh himself. And that might be surprising to you, that Yahweh would appear in human form in the Old Testament. But that's what the text clearly says, actually, and we'll see even more clearly throughout the passage. And in fact, there are a number of other examples in the Old Testament of this happening as well. The theological word for it is a theophany, right? a, a compound word uh, that comes from a combination of the Greek words for God and manifestation or appearing. So a theophany is a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament. And right off the bat, Abraham recognizes that these three men are very important. We can see that in the lengths to which Abraham went to honor them and to be hospitable to them. Look at verses 2 through 8. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, 
If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So as soon as Abraham sees these men, he runs out to them. And in that culture, it was very unusual to see an older man running in that way, especially one of the social standing of Abraham. Running would have usually been considered to be beneath the dignity of a man like Abraham. And yet without any hesitation, Abraham runs out to meet these three men and even bows himself before them and proceeds to act toward them as a servant would act toward a master. Not only does Abraham set an elaborate feast before the men, he doesn't even count himself worthy of eating it alongside them. But instead, as we see in verse 8, simply stands by them as they enjoy the food. The three men that get down to business with Abraham in verses 9 through 12, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, if you've been attending here recently and have been with us as we've journeyed through Genesis, you may remember that this isn't the first time God's promised that Sarah will have a child. However, it is the first time he's put a time frame on that promise, which has the effect of making the promise seem all the more real and potent. Yet when Sarah hears the promise, verse 12 says that she laughs to herself. And in contrast to Abraham's laugh recorded in the previous chapter, Sarah's laugh seemed to have an element of scoffing and unbelief. It's as if she's saying to herself, you know, yeah, right. That'll be the day when I have a child. And I think it's understandable for her to feel that way, right? First of all, she's been infertile her entire life. And on top of her infertility, even during her younger years, she's now 90 years old and has gone through menopause. Yeah, as the text says, the way of women had ceased to be with her. So in the words of one commentator, it would seem that Sarah is doubly dead with respect to childbearing. The promise of a child just seems absurd from a human perspective. So... Sarah laughs. We then read in verses 13 through 15, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but she did laugh. (laughs) So the Lord sort of calls out Sarah a little bit for laughing to herself about this promise. And by the way, if, any, if God ever appears to any of you in the form of a theophany and calls you out for doing something, I don't recommend denying that, he, that you did whatever he says you did, right? He's God. He knows what you did, so you, you probably should just own up to it. Otherwise, it, you know, it's just awkward, right? Can you, you feel the awkwardness in verse 15, right? Sarah denies it and says, you know, I didn't laugh. So God has to come back and say, but yeah, you kind of did, right? I imagine an awkward silence probably ensued until maybe Abraham was like, all right then, does anyone want more coffee? I I don't know how that played out. And yet the climactic statement of this passage is actually what God says back in verse 14. After Sarah laughs, he asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that brings us to the main idea of this entire passage, which is that God delayed Isaac's birth to show that nothing is too hard for him to accomplish. Again, God delayed Isaac's birth to show that nothing is too hard for him to accomplish. You see, we might be limited, but God isn't. He can do anything he wants, any time he wants, any way he wants. And nothing can stand in his way. You know, for those of you who are Avengers fans, it's kind of like God has all six infinity stones, right? All the time. And he doesn't even have to snap his fingers to use them. His power is truly limitless. As Job says to God in Job 42 too, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In addition, the prophet Jeremiah prays in Jeremiah 32, 7 or 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you to do. God then confirms what Jeremiah says several verses later in that that same passage, Jeremiah 32, 26 and 27. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? You know, so often, it seems like we have this this ridiculous tendency to reduce God down to human proportions in our minds and to think of him as less than who he truly is. We tend to think God as being... uh, essentially like us, except maybe a a bit more powerful. This is actually the the very thing God rebukes his people for in Psalm 50, verse 21, where he says that you thought I was one like yourself. Ouch. (laughs) You thought that I was one like yourself. Big mistake. (laughs) Friends, God doesn't share our limitations. Remember that God created you after his image, not the other way around. 
So beware of conceiving of a God in your mind who's created after your image and who shares your limitations. And back in our main passage, that's essentially what Sarah was doing. She was projecting her own limitations onto God. Just think about how ridiculous that is. I mean, we're talking about a God who spoke this universe into existence. I mean, how hard can it be for a God like that, with with that kind of power, to enable a woman to conceive and have a child? Not very hard at all. And that's a good thing for us to remember as well. You know, maybe the next time you're tempted to doubt something about God or to doubt that God's able to do something, just go outside and look around. You know, go up to a, a, a high overlook somewhere and, and look out over the vast landscape. Or maybe go outside at night and look up at the stars. Surely, a God who, who spoke all of that into existence is able to accomplish his will in your life and to, to keep his promises to you and to look after your welfare. And let's be specific here. In what specific areas of your life have you perhaps been tempted to think or act as though something's too hard for the Lord? The first situation that comes to my mind, in which those of us who are Christians might be tempted to think this way, is with regard to the people we know, whom we long to see put their trust in Jesus, but who haven't done so yet. If you're anything like me, there are certain people that you care deeply about that you've been praying would be saved for years or even decades, and yet who show almost no interest in the gospel still. That can be tough, right? And and if we're not careful, we can maybe gradually begin to give up hope that they'll ever be saved, even though we might not say it out loud, we can sometimes begin to imagine that certain people are, in a sense, beyond saving. So maybe you need to let God's gentle rebuke to Sarah here in Genesis 18 sink into your own heart as well. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Friends, it doesn't matter how long you've been praying for this or that person to be saved. God can save that person today if he wants to. I mean, if you want an example of God's ability to do that, just look at the way Christianity's flourishing right now in Iran. There have been numerous reports recently of the the astonishing way in which evangelical, Bible-believing Christianity is currently spreading like wildfire in Iran, of all places, which has been ruled by an Islamic theocracy since the 1970s. According to an estimate cited in Newsweek magazine, Christianity is growing faster in Iran than in any other country in the world right now. As one Iranian pastor has stated, we find ourselves facing what is more than a conversion to the Christian faith, it is a mass exodus 
from Islam. Now, obviously, these Iranian Christians aren't able to gather together in public, but they do gather in tiny house churches of four or five people. And there are so many of these house churches that the Iranian government is reportedly viewing uh, Christians as what has been described as an existential threat. Just to put things in perspective, about 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from a Muslim background in Iran was estimated to be between five and 10,000 people. Yet today, that number is estimated to be between 800,000 and a million people, making Iran the, the site of the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. And so is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, obviously not, (laughs) as we can see happening right now in Iran. And if God can save people in Iran the way he's doing, then don't you think he can save that loved one, that friend, that, that coworker, that neighbor that you've been asking him to save? So whatever you do, don't stop praying for them and actively seeking to lead them to Christ. God has put you in their lives for a reason and has called you and and empowered you by his Holy Spirit to be a faithful witness. So don't let anything discourage you from that mission. Because as God And his words here in Genesis 18 remind us, nothing is too hard for him. God might take a long time to save the people you're you're praying for, just as he took a long time to give Sarah a child. But that doesn't in any way mean that he's not going to do it. And of course, there are many other areas of life as well in which uh, we're often tempted to think or act as if Uh, something's too hard for the Lord. So whatever your situation, just be reminded that God can do anything. His power has no limit. He can break the bonds of any addiction in your life, no matter how powerful that addiction is. He can provide for you financially, no matter how challenging Your current financial situation seems to be. He can bring about reconciliation and restoration of any relationship in your life, no matter how estranged from that person you currently are. God can provide a spouse for you, even if you've been searching for one for years. He can provide comfort and strength for you after the loss of a loved one, even if the grief at times feels overwhelming. There's absolutely nothing that God can't do. And not only that, he also hasn't forgotten about you. Just as God hasn't forgotten about Sarah, but visits her in Genesis 18 and reminds her of his promise. He hasn't forgotten about you either. And as we think about Sarah... And the way she'd soon miraculously conceive and give birth to a child named Isaac, we're reminded of another woman 
who would miraculously conceive and give birth and thereby show that nothing's too hard for the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, we read about a woman named Mary. And Mary was a virgin. Yet an angel appeared to her one day and told her that even though she was a virgin, she would nevertheless conceive and give birth to a child and was to call him Jesus. And get this, as the angel made this announcement to Mary, he reminded her that nothing will be impossible with God. That's his exact words as they're recorded in Luke 137. For nothing will be impossible with God. You know, if I didn't know any better, I might just start to think that there are echoes in the angel's statement to Mary of what God told Sarah so many years earlier, back in Genesis 18, 14. And sure enough, Mary um, conceived and gave birth, not just to any child, but to one who would show in a climactic way that nothing is too hard for the Lord. See, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was no ordinary person. Not only was he miraculously conceived, he was actually God in human flesh. God became a man in the person of Jesus. And the reason he did that was to rescue us from our sin. After Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, he died on a cross in order to make payment for our sins. Because our sins deserved God's judgment. But Jesus suffered that judgment in our place. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Yet the greatest display of God's power didn't come until three days after that. After Jesus laid in a tomb for three days following his crucifixion, he miraculously rose from the dead and thereby defeated sin and death in a decisive way. I'm sure that during those three days between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, his disciples must have thought, that's the end of it. Jesus had died, like it's over. Kind of like Sarah in Genesis 18. In their minds, all hope had been lost. But God showed that he is indeed the God of the impossible. When he raised Jesus from the dead and even gave him a glorified resurrection body that could never die again. So is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the resurrection testifies to us in a climactic way. But the answer is no. And that's then confirmed as the Holy Spirit takes the power of Jesus' resurrection and applies it to our lives in what the Bible calls a spiritual rebirth. See, not only do we have the miraculous birth of Isaac in Genesis and the miraculous birth of Jesus in the New Testament, we also have the miraculous rebirth of people today as the Holy Spirit transforms people from the inside out. 
taking those who are spiritually dead and making them spiritually alive. So that means no matter what you have done in your life that you're not very proud of, no matter what messes you've made, that you are never too far gone for God to rescue you, for God to you know, turn your life around and forgive your sin and to transform into a new person. Just cry out to Jesus for rescue and put your full trust in him. And you'll experience the same thing in your own life that God helped Sarah understand so many years ago, that nothing is too hard for the Lord. He is able to meet you wherever you are and make you new and make you whole. Yet that's not all. Looking back once again at how the story unfolds in Genesis 18 and the surrounding chapters, notice how God deliberately delays Isaac's birth so that he can show in a more dramatic way that nothing's too hard for him to accomplish. You know, so much of studying the Bible well basically comes back to asking the right questions of the text. And as we think about what's happening in Genesis, we should ask ourselves, why does God delay Isaac's birth for so long? I mean, God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12 that Abraham would have offspring and could have fulfilled that promise that very year. So why did God make Abraham and Sarah wait 25 years and endure such heartache and emotional turmoil before finally fulfilling that promise. And there's really no other answer except that God was accomplishing his purposes in Abraham and Sarah's lives. First of all, he was teaching them what it means to live by faith and using this trial to draw them closer to himself. That's what he does in our lives as well. God uses trials to break us of our prideful self-sufficiency and bring us to a place where we're able to experience his goodness and grace on a level that wouldn't otherwise be possible. Charles Spurgeon, writing in the 19th century, says it this way. There is a blessed proportion. God bears a pair of scales. In this side, he puts his people's trials, and in that, he puts their consolations or or their comforts. When the scale of trial is nearly empty, you will always find the scale of consolation in nearly the same condition. And when the scale of trials is full, you will find the scale of consolation or, or comfort in the presence of God just as heavy. When the black clouds gather most, the light is the more brightly revealed to us. When the night lowers and the storm is coming on, the heavenly captain is always closest to his crew. It is a blessed thing that when we are most cast down, then it is that we are most lifted up by the consolations of the Holy Spirit. 
One reason is because trials make more room for consolation. Great hearts can only be made by great troubles. The spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes more room for consolation. When God comes into our heart and finds it full, he begins to break our comforts and to make it empty. Then there is more room for grace. The more a person suffers, the more comfort he will always have because he will be more fitted to receive it. Another reason why we are often most happy in our troubles is this. Then we have the closest dealings with God. When the barn is full, man can live without God. When the purse is bursting with gold, we try to do without so much prayer. But once take our earthly blessings away, and we want our God. Hence, our trials bring us to God, and we are happier. For nearness to God is happiness. Come, troubled believer, fret not over your heavy troubles, for they are the heralds Weighty mercies. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you from my own personal experience that that has been true in my life. The seasons of greatest difficulty in my life have almost without exception also been the seasons in which I've been brought closest to God and have experienced his, his presence and his sweet comforts in the most powerful way. In addition to that, back in Genesis, another reason why God deliberately delayed Isaac's birth was in order to show in the most dramatic way possible that in the words of Genesis 18, 14, that nothing is too hard for him to accomplish. You know, it's one thing for, uh, let's say, an NFL quarterback to win the Super Bowl. That in itself is a pretty impressive feat. But imagine winning the Super Bowl with one hand tied behind your back, right? That would be crazy. And yet, if if such a thing were to ever be done, it would certainly show in the most stunning way the athletic abilities of that quarterback. And that's essentially what God's doing here in Genesis by delaying Isaac's birth. God is demonstrating his power in a dramatic way so that Abraham and Sarah and everyone else throughout the rest of history who reads the book of Genesis will see how glorious he is and be led to put their faith in him. And you could even take that, uh, if you take that basic idea back far enough, you could even say, that that's why God allowed evil and suffering into this world in the first place. And people often ask, why would God allow evil and suffering to come into this world? Or maybe a slightly more nuanced question, why would God create a world that he knew would be plagued with so much evil and suffering? And there are several answers that are often given to that question. But I think the best and most satisfying answer is that the reason God allowed evil and suffering into this world and the the reason he created a world 
that he knew would one day be plagued by evil and suffering is because without evil and suffering, his glory would never be fully known. To state it another way, if sin didn't exist, there would be no Savior, no cross, and no gospel of grace. See, the way in which God's most exalted is through the display of his glory. And especially, as Ephesians 1 emphasizes over and over again, the glory of his grace. That's the exact phrase Ephesians 1 uses, the glory of his grace. That is the glory revealed through God's saving grace in the gospel. And that also happens to be the way in which we experience the deepest joy and satisfaction as well. The greatest pleasure in the universe is to behold and experience the glory of God's grace. Yet without a world in which sin exists, we wouldn't ever get to experience that. We wouldn't ever get to experience what is the greatest pleasure in the entire universe of the the glory of God's grace in the gospel. And so that's why God allowed evil and sin and, and thereby suffering into this world. He knew what it would cause. And not only that, he knew that he would eventually have to endure the worst of it himself on the cross. Yet he also knew that it was necessary in order to accomplish his greater purpose of displaying his glory. And that's the same basic dynamic we find at work in Genesis 18 as well. God knew that delaying the fulfillment of his promise of a child would be very difficult for Abraham and Sarah. But he also knew that it was necessary in order for his glory to be displayed in the most dynamic way. For Abraham and Sarah and all future generations. 